Welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.7, Jamestown Beginnings. Well, good news, guys. After spending the first several weeks messing around in the always intriguing world of 16th century Europe, it is finally time to get to the real story. As much fun as we've had bouncing around through the political, economic, and religious changes in Europe, we are finally ready to begin looking at the first group of English settlers to cross the Atlantic and settle in Jamestown. Before we get into that, however, I want to give a rundown of what the foreseeable future of the podcast is going to look like. The popular story of the United States is that of a ragtag bunch of colonies that joined together to fight the mighty British army. However, that is something that doesn't really exist right away. The first colony should be seen as more of a collection of independent nodes acting separately from each other. In order to approach this, I plan to work through the colonies one by one, looking at the unique factors of each specific group making their way to America. I think addressing the major colonies one at a time is going to be the most effective way for me to move through the rest of this season. The general plan is to move through each colony and get it up to right around 1650 before moving on to the next. After moving through the colonies, I will have a few episodes to tie everything together and address a few other subjects that I want to hit. That is going to basically take us to the end of the first season. Now, with all that said, we are going to begin this week with the first of several episodes looking at that first colony. Founded in 1607, Jamestown would become the first permanent English colony in the Americas. For 13 years, Jamestown stood alone as the only English settlement in America before the Puritans joined them with their settlement in Plymouth. The founding of Jamestown is a story of failure, misery, death, starvation, war, and ultimately after facing cataclysm after cataclysm, a moderate amount of success. The story of Jamestown is one that will see the colony become the largest tobacco exporter in Europe, but only after surviving disease and war with the Indians and starving that became so severe that the people were forced to turn to cannibalism. These are just a few of the things that we are going to explore over the next several episodes, and today we are going to begin laying the groundwork for all of that. Everybody in the United States is taught that the Pilgrims, spoiler alert by the way, traveled across the Atlantic to the Americas to avoid religious persecution. In many ways, this is held up as a banner establishing the freedoms that would become synonymous with the future United States. The decision to go to Jamestown is fueled by the single most common denominator in all of colonization, the hope of finding riches. To begin this week, I want to look at the reasons why people suddenly found themselves boarding ships and heading across the Atlantic. What were their motivations? What were they looking for? By looking at what motivated the first settlers to go to Virginia is going to tell us a lot about the colony and its future. And this is going to be something we keep coming back to in future episodes as we move through the history of Jamestown and Virginia as a whole. Today, when people look back on the history of the United States, there seems to be a tendency to focus more on the Pilgrims, the founders of Plymouth, than there are the founders of Jamestown. In fact, there seems to be among many a general belief that the Pilgrims who came across on the Mayflower were the first to settle the future United States. And yet, we know that not to be true. Virginia had been settled more than a decade before, and in fact by 1620 was well on its way towards stability. 
The question therefore becomes, why is Jamestown often forgotten when we look at the establishment of the English colonies in North America? That is one of the questions we are going to be looking at over the next several weeks as we explore Jamestown. What makes the Jamestown settlers different than the New England settlers? To begin this week, I want to start to look at the conditions under which Jamestown was founded and who the settlers were. Last week, we had discussed English attempts to colonize North America at the Roanoke Colony. Well, that colony would mysteriously disappear, it also marked the end of English colonization efforts up until 1607. While the failure of the Roanoke Colony may have had some minimal effect on the future colonization of North America, the real issue was going to be the ongoing Anglo-Spanish War. The war between England and Spain had done a pretty good job of depleting the English treasury. However, with James I now in power, he quickly brought an end to the war with the Spanish through the Treaty of London. This means that the funds needed to launch a colonization effort were at last available. Following the end of the war, there was also a new reality for the English when it came to privateering. If you recall from episode 1.3, privateering was tantamount to state-sponsored piracy. This had become a big deal during the 16th century, as the Spanish jumped out to such a huge lead in establishing thriving and, more importantly, profitable colonies in the Americas. Last time, we had talked about the devastating effect that privateering had on the Spanish. The easier solution for European powers that were not the Spanish or Portuguese was to turn towards privateering. Instead of forming your own colonies, you'd instead attack the Spanish ships, steal their goods, and sell them as your own back in Europe. The English had just finished up a war with Spain and knew that continued use of privateering was likely to lead to another war. So specifically in the Treaty of London, one of the requirements from Spain was an agreement that England would back off of their privateering practices, at least against the Spanish. The effect of indo-privateering against the Spanish merchants did not reduce, however, English interest in the potential profit and the items to be found in the Americas. The logical solution, therefore, was for the English to launch a colonization effort of their own. As mentioned above, with the war over, there was a sudden surplus of funds in England. This is not to mention that with the war over, there was now the manpower necessary for colonization efforts to be made. The end of the war also means that the English had the ability to branch out. Keep in mind that one of the consequences of the first Spanish Armada was that it prevented the English efforts to resupply their colony in Roanoke. With the war over, however, this concern has been completely mitigated. Economically, the desire to colonize the Americas would grow quickly in the years following the end of the war. Shortly after the end of the war, you begin to see the first joint stock companies for the specific purpose of colonizing the Americas form. These companies are going to spring up with the stated intent of going to the Americas, finding the abundant natural resources, and sending them back to England hopefully for profit. Colonization was an expensive undertaking, to say the least, and this is going to help lead to the rise of these joint stock companies. A joint stock company is simply a type of corporation where several investors come together, pool their money in order to fund an expedition. This has obvious advantages over a single or otherwise small group of investors. It was really expensive to start a colony, and it's always going to be a long-term game. Well, obviously, everybody hoped that the new colony would be founded, find a city of gold, and conquer the natives all within a couple weeks. The investors know that this is not a realistic expectation. And beyond that, it was not a huge secret that establishing colonies was a task that came with considerable risk. 
the English investors at a minimum would have been aware of earlier colonization efforts at Roanoke and what happened there. Investors would have likely understood that profit was going to be slow in coming and knew that they should not expect a quick return. With this in mind, the emergence of the joint stock company makes sense. A joint stock company is made up of a large group of investors, which means that the risk is going to be more spread out. The advantage for the colony is that by having more investors, there is going to be a far greater source of resources available, which in turn gives the colony a better chance at surviving. For the individual investor, there was some real risk involved. Colonies had been lost previously, and there was no promise that these colonies would survive. However, the hope was that this could be a long-term investment and that if the colony did survive, there would be a significant amount of profit on the other side. In 1606, King James issued a royal charter for the formation of two joint stock companies. These companies were the North Virginia Company of London and the South Virginia Company of London. The companies were given command to make habitation into that part of America commonly called Virginia. The primary portion of our story is going to be on the South Virginia Company of London. However, I want to take just a brief detour and look at the North Virginia Company of London first. The North Virginia Company, under the direction of Sir Fernando Georges, launched their expedition to North America on May 31, 1607. Georges himself did not actually travel with the expedition, but rather was an investor and handled much of the day-to-day -day work back in England. When they left, the North Virginia Company had two ships with about 120 men on board. The colonists landed near the mouth of the Kennebec River in modern-day Maine, where they would found the Popham Colony, with George Popham as the colony leader. The primary issue that the colony initially faced was the time of year when it arrived. Landing in late summer of 1607, there was not enough time to establish crops before the winter. Facing serious food shortages, that December about half of the 120 colonists who originally landed decided that they had had enough fun for one day and went back to England. Following the departure of half the colonists, a rivalry emerged for control of the colony between George Popham and Raleigh Gilbert, with the colony divided into factions between the two men. Gilbert was the 25-year-old son of Humphrey Gilbert, and if the name Humphrey Gilbert sounds familiar, that is because we saw him briefly last episode. Humphrey Gilbert was the guy who had been granted that patent by Elizabeth way back in 1578 to establish a colony in North America. And if you recall from that episode, Gilbert was last seen in 1583, drowning somewhere off the coast of Newfoundland. Upon his death, that patent that Gilbert had passed on down to Sir Walter Raleigh, and the result was the Roanoke Colony. The rivalry between Popham and Gilbert was short-lived, however, because in early February 1608, George Popham himself would die which means the colony falls into the control of Gilbert. In spring of 1608, it was discovered that the lead financial backer of the colony, Sir John Popham, had died the previous summer, and this cast doubt on whether or not the colony had the financial ability to survive. However, this is all going to become a moot point when in the late summer of 1608, Gilbert learns that his older brother had also died. With the death of his older brother, Gilbert had become the heir to a title and a large estate in Devon, England. Gilbert decided that a title and a castle sounded a whole lot better than hanging out any longer in Maine. With nobody else really in a position to lead the colony, Gilbert, along with the remaining 45 colonists, decided to return to England in the summer of 1608, thus ending the Popham Colony. So why doesn't anybody talk about the ill-fated Popham Colony? Well, there's a couple reasons for this. 
Number one, and most importantly, the colony was really short-lived. It lasted just about a year. Unlike Roanoke and Jamestown, the colony was nowhere near as devastated by death. In fact, there hardly seems to be any deaths at all. We know that Popham died, but beyond him, it's really unclear if anybody else actually died over there. And while it's not out of the questions that other colonists did succumb to the conditions, there certainly is not the widespread dying that we see in Jamestown. Roanoke, for its part, disappeared completely without a trace, which is always going to make it interesting. The Popham colony decided that they had enough, and they just went home, which is hardly an exciting story. The Popham colony, though, was not without success. In contrast to what we will see in Jamestown, there was a level of cooperation and trade with the local Indian tribes. What is absent, however, are the stories of widespread warfare between the English settlers and the Indian tribes, something that we are going to see become a reoccurring theme for our Jamestown settlers. The Popham colony would also build a ship, the Virginia, which proved that North American colonies could be used for shipbuilding. Beyond that, however, there really isn't much to talk about in regard to the Popham colony. The settlement was mostly forgotten about and the exact site of the colony was lost for hundreds of years. In 1994, the location of the colony was rediscovered, and in the years since, there has been excavation of that site. Remains of many of the original buildings have now been unearthed. With the end of the Popham Colony came the functional end of the North Virginia Company of London. Its counterpart, the South Virginia Company of London, is the group that we are going to now turn to. It is this company that would build the settlement that will survive, as they are the ones who are going to establish the colony in Jamestown. So who were the first colonists? Most of the settlers could be organized into one of two camps. The first camp is the gentlemen who were looking for riches and some adventure. The second class were people rounded up from the streets of London. By the time 1607 had rolled around, London had long had a serious problem with homelessness and vagrancy. England had seen this rapid rise in vagrancy and crime during the 16th century. An estimated 80% of the English population lived in small country villages during the 16th and 17th century. Problems for the lower classes began to arise when a policy known as enclosure began proliferating throughout the countryside. Enclosure is a policy whereby the aristocracy literally places a fence on what used to be otherwise communal lands. By dividing the land into carefully delineated parcels, it meant that there was more land available for full-time farming and pasture. This land that is now being enclosed was often land that was used communally amongst the peasant classes, land that they very much depended on. Once an area was enclosed, it became much easier to manage, which meant that far fewer people could manage the livestock and crops. For the aristocracy, this program proved to be largely successful. The policy increased overall agricultural yield of England and ultimately was reflected in the increased national wealth for England. And while enclosure was not a new policy, it had been around since at least the 12th century, during the 16th and 17th century, the policy really ramps up. While the enclosure policy was successful for both the aristocracy and for the country itself, it was a catastrophe for the rural peasantry. It is estimated that between 1530 and 1630, as many as half of the rural peasants of England may have lost their lands. Of course, while England enjoyed economic benefits, they were suddenly left dealing with a serious problem of unemployment. Those who had lost their lands started roaming in search of any work or charity that they could find. 
as historically has been the case, most of these vagrants ended up making their way into the major cities. London was the biggest city of England and saw the largest number of people migrating there for work. With an increase in poverty and vagrancy came also an increase in crime. For those who own property in England, this is obviously a serious problem. Nobody wants to live in a city that sees increasing crime, and London is no exception. The promoters for the new colony did an excellent job of tapping into these fears. The colonies were a fantastic place to stay in the growing vagrant population. On the one hand, for the person seeking work, the New World offered a place where they could find work along with, typically fake, promises of prosperity. This policy would prove to work well both during the attempt to colonize Roanoke as well as the later attempt to colonize Jamestown. This means that, from a practical standpoint, a large number of those traveling to Jamestown were these people from the streets of London. And while one would think that these people had been displaced off their lands and would have knowledge of farming, that didn't always prove to be the case. Remember that enclosures had been going on for a long time, and that by 1607, many of the vagrants who went to Virginia had never spent a single day of their lives on a farm. The other group making their way to Jamestown were the gentleman class, looking for big profits and maybe even a little bit of adventure. The gentleman population crossing the Atlantic had one main thing on their mind, and that's profit. During the 17th century, wealth was the kind of thing that kept men from having to do any manual labor of their own. So these men from this class had hoped to come over, assume leadership positions, and pull in profits. The gentlemen were made up largely of the second sons of the aristocracy. A second son is essentially that second son in line who was not going to inherit the biggest state. Therefore, hanging around in England, maybe not as exciting for them. Looking over across the Atlantic at the New World, they had a chance to own their own estate and make a mark for themselves. The problem with all of this is that of the entire group making their way across the Atlantic to Virginia, hardly anybody had any experience in, you know, how to actually set up or maintain agriculture. You have the wealthy coming over who had probably never even seen a farm, as well as vagrants from the streets of London who had become skilled in the art of begging and stealing. This means out of the two classes of people coming to Jamestown, you are left with two basic motivations. For the wealthy group, the only thing on their mind was profit. What they saw was a land full of opportunities that simply were not available to them back home in England. The other group, the vagrants, saw North America as a place where they could start again. For a group that had so long been looking for work, the colonies had just that. This is, of course, for the vagrants who had much say at all in whether or not they were going to go to Virginia in the first place. In December 1606, three ships, the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery, along with 105 settlers and a crew of 39 left England en route to Virginia. Those aboard the ships were a mixture of roughly 54 gentlemen, with the remainder being a mixture of artisans and vagrants. Without much question, the most famous name on the ships today is the 27-year-old John Smith. John Smith was, by the time he left for Jamestown, an experienced soldier. Smith, by all accounts, had lived a difficult life. During the 1590s, Smith had been an apprentice to a merchant in the town of Kings Lynn in Lincolnshire. Following his father's death, the young Smith decided that a life of a merchant simply was not for him. He ran away and became a mercenary. During this period, Smith would get his first taste of actual combat, fighting in the Anglo-Spanish War both with the English and with the Dutch. After fighting against Philip II, Smith moved on and joined the Austrian army where he fought against the Muslim Turks in Hungary. 
During his time fighting with the Austrians, Smith was captured and taken prisoner. Smith was, per his own words, taken slave and found himself working on a farm in Tartary. Smith would manage to escape from his servitude, stealing his master's horse in the process. Smith then makes his way to Russia, from where he was able to get all the way back to Europe and finally returned to England. Upon returning to England, John Smith earned an honorable discharge from the army. Having now become Captain John Smith, he came back to an England that was becoming increasingly interested in Virginia. Smith, by this point, had also been noticed by members of the new London Company. Smith had seen so much of Europe and had spent so much time in the field that he was seen as an invaluable member of that company. For a minimal investment, Smith was invited to become one of the seven council members. The journey across the Atlantic for the settlers was not exactly a pleasure cruise for the settlers on board. The trip first went through the Caribbean, where the first settlers would die while on a hunt. After three weeks of island hopping, the trip up to the Chesapeake was made. Arriving on April 26, 1607, it had been nearly four months since the colonists had left England. Smith himself had not taken the journey well, and upon landing in Virginia, was not actually allowed to leave the ship. During the journey, Smith had become accused of insubordination and was forced to remain on board the ship when it landed. It's going to be nearly a month before John Smith is going to even be allowed to walk off the boat. Making landing between Cape Henry and Cape Charles, the colonists ran into their first potential problem. As it stood, the area where the landing was made was densely populated with local Indian tribes. The Powhatan people dominated the area and would prove to be a major problem for the colonists throughout their first decade in North America. Under the command of the chief Powhatan, this group of natives contained at least 14,000 people and possibly as many as 24,000. For this week, all you need to know is that the area where the colonists landed was densely inhabited by the Powhatan tribes. Next week, I plan to jump into who these tribes were and cover much more in depth about their early relationship with the English. So, if you want a proper introduction to the Powhatan tribes, come on back next week. Now, as has always been the case with real estate, location is everything. The settlers had been given very specific instructions of where they should look to settle. First, there was still some lingering concern over the Spanish threat to the south. While the Anglo-Spanish War was over, the English felt it important to find a location that was defensible against possible Spanish attack. And this makes sense. The Spanish remained the dominant empire in the Americas, and they had never seemed terribly keen on other nations coming in and settling. Remember those French Huguenots from the last episode? The ones who established that small colony near Jacksonville? The ones that the Spanish slaughtered? The English would have wanted to avoid a similar outcome, so it was important to make sure that the spot they chose had good defenses. At the same time, while farming was key for these colonies to survive, it is also equally important that supplies be easy to move. Early on in the colony, the settlers are going to want things to be as easy as possible for the English ships to come and resupply them. As time moves forward, the colony can become more successful. It is going to be important at that point to easily export their goods back to England. Therefore, the English had made their instructions clear that the site was going to require a good harbor that made for easy landings. What the colonists found was an island on the northern side of the James River. The island was made up of an area with high marsh grasses, while the other half was largely forest. The island included a large area of swamp and marshlands, which would then empty into the James. Now, herein lies the problem with this new home for our settlers. 
let's say that you are looking to buy a new house. After much searching, you come across the perfect house. It has everything you want, and you can check off all of your requirements. But then, before you buy it, you notice that the rest of the neighborhood is totally abandoned. Seriously, nobody is living here. Nobody is living here in one of the most densely inhabited Indian places in all of the eastern seaboard. Well, as you will see in a moment, there is a good reason why the island was abandoned. While the location of Jamestown did prove to be a good defensive position, there is little else positive to say about it. During the summer, the swamp lands of the island were a breeding ground for mosquitoes and the malaria that they carried. The water supply on the island was particularly brackish, which caused salt poisoning amongst our settlers. During those hot summer months, the water became shallow and stagnant. Not only did this lead to more malaria carrying mosquitoes, but it also meant that the colonists' waste and excrement was not being washed away. This would, in exchange, lead to frequent outbreaks of dysentery and typhoid fever. All of this would hit the settlers really hard. Between the salt poisoning and the rampant disease, many of the settlers become so weak that they are just completely unable to work. With so many of the colonists now not working, producing enough food quickly becomes a problem that is going to cause the colonists serious issues moving forward. Starvation during the winter becomes a real threat and is going to be something that ended up causing a great deal of misery. The most famous period of starving is going to come during the winter of 1609 and 1610, something that we are going to have an entire episode on a little while down the road. However, the winter of 1609 is hardly going to be the only time that food shortages are going to be problematic for the colonists. May 4th, 1607. That is the day that Jamestown is officially founded. In the eyes of many, this is the date that the British Empire was launched. An empire that at one point would control nearly a quarter of all the land on the globe. For our story, Jamestown is absolutely our launching point. Next week, we are going to look more closely at the Indian tribes and their plans to contain the English. What they didn't know, and frankly the English may not have realized, is that Jamestown represents the very tip of the iceberg. Though it was slow initially, a trickle of colonists quickly is going to turn into a flood. What begins as a single colony in Virginia in a matter of a few decades will become colonies all up and down the east coast of what's going to become the United States. Where we are leaving them today, the colonists have found a location for their new colony. What none of them know yet is just how harsh the conditions are going to become. Of the 104 settlers who make it alive to Jamestown, only 38 are still going to be alive just nine months later. This is going to become a reoccurring story, especially in those early years. Survival is far from guaranteed, and death really was something that was an ever-present risk. This is something that we are going to be looking at in more detail in the episodes to come. Next time, we are going to turn our attention to the relationship between the Indian tribes living around Virginia and the complex society that they had formed. These tribes are going to be a central part of our story for the first settlers in Jamestown. The interaction between the English and the Indian population will often become violent for both sides. Our next episode, I'm going to dive into that part of the story. I'm going to look at the Powhatan tribes. What was their plan to deal with the English? And how did those plans end up getting executed? We're also going to take some time to look at those first encounters between the English settlers and the tribes. 
As always, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. And I will be back here in two weeks time and we will begin talking about the Paladin Confederacy. <laughs>